Welcome to Ness and Dorma, your monthly, or thereabouts, fix of 80s and 90s football nostalgia. I'm Gary Naylor, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Rob Smythe. Hello, Rob. Hello, Gary. Happy New Year. Ah, Happy New Year to you too. And Mike Gibbons. Hello, Mike. Hi, Gary. Happy New Year. And speaking of Happy New Year's, you can make our New Year just that teensy weensy bit happier in the oh, following way. Oh, Rob. Gary. As <laughs> segues go. Um, yeah, so if you want to support us on Patreon, you can. It's patreon.com forward slash Ness and Dorma. Um, thanks ever so much to everyone who already does. Yeah, this month we have a few people to thank for their new, what's the word? Patronage, I don't know. The five pound tier we have Nikhil and Stephen Gallagher. Thank you to both of those. Ten pound tier we have David Howarth, and we're going to do a thing with the ten pound tier where if you go into that tier, we'll take your name and basically tell you what type of footballer you were. Uh, so David Howarth, we were thinking left back for Barry Town in the early nineties. He's got eleven penalties in the League of Wales in ninety three, and to this day he still bores people in the pub, telling me we would have nailed that Paul Bowden penalty against Romania. But I don't know if you have any. Other thoughts on who David Howarth might have been? Works for me. Yeah, I'll go with that. (laughs) (laughs) Over there in Barrytown, they do things very strange, though, so uh, maybe he wouldn't have nailed that that penalty. Um, So we'll move into the the substance of the pod this week, and we're going to start with our player of the pod, and um, we kind of fondly imagine, having heard that appeal to for our Patreon site, that uh, you listeners are all singing away out there in listener land, singing, We'll take more care of you, Ness and Dorma, Ness and Dorma. And if you're of a certain age, that appallingly rendered melody... Uh, but more importantly, the lyrics, will remind you of a British Airways advert, which was extraordinarily the the um, inspiration for a terrorist chant for a footballer who has a, a decent shout as being one of the members of the forgotten pantheon of great 80s and 90s players. And we'll come to that perhaps at the end of our discussion. Because we'll take more care of you, Archibald, Archibald, would ring around White Hart Lane as the Scotsman who made it big first in Scotland, inevitably, and then in England, and subsequently, somewhat uh, surprisingly, I think, in Spain, um, was was heralded by his fans. Uh, Steve Archibald is our player of the pod. Now, Rob, um, you've been digging into your extensive library and have come up with some uh, views of Alex Ferguson, who was not quite his first manager, but certainly his first manager at a big club in those glory days at Aberdeen in the late 70s and early 80s. Yeah, <clears throat> so Archibald had yeah, a very good spell at um, Aberdeen under Ferguson, and they had quite an amusing relationship, often arguing um, over everything and nothing. And, and Fergie, um, yeah, there's quite a nice bit he says about him. He said... Um, Our relationship was often one of conflict, but I truly admired Steve. He was single-minded, stubborn, awkward, determined. He reminded me of someone. And what a player he was. Of all the strikers I've worked with, he undoubtedly belonged in the top echelon. And I think Archibald was slightly before my time, but I've always liked his character and interviews with him. He seems really interesting. He's got an autobiography coming out soon, which might actually, I think, will be worth reading. But there's a few stories 
things I've always liked. There's one with Ferguson when um, <clears throat> Archibald's got a hat-trick against Celtic and took the ball home. And apparently in those days it wasn't common, you know, for the for somebody who's got a hat-trick to go in with the ball. So the next day Fergie called him in to bollock him in the Archibald chair in his office, as it was known, because he was in it so frequently. And then a the day later, Fergie was just in there having a cup of tea or whatever with his staff. The door opened. Archibald hoofed this ball off the wall, <laughs> shouted, there's your fucking ball. And apparently rebounded... <laughs> It's like ricocheting around the room, smashing China and things everywhere. Um, so you'd have to be a brave man to do that to Fergie. Yeah, he had a kind of healthy disregard for kind of the norms of, of kind of behaviour and attitudes and so on. And uh, Mike, you've got one of his uh, more famous quotes that links into um, the famous P.G. Woodhouse quote about never... Uh, mistaking a, a ray of sunshine for a Scotsman. Uh, I've rather mangled that, but I think you'll, you'll know what it is. <laughs> but Mike, you, his famous one about team spirit. Oh, yes. He said, um, team spirit, I think the quote goes, team spirit is an illusion glimpsed in the aftermath of victory. I think mm. uh, it's a I brilliant quote, quote, that. I'm not sure I totally agree with it. I think, but it's a fantastic quote. No, you can see what I mean. It comes off very cynical, doesn't it? Um, but but yeah, I mean, you can see what he means, and maybe maybe there you know maybe there is a kernel of truth in it. Um, oh yeah, there's de- I think there's definitely some truth in it. I just don't think it's absolute. But yeah, no, it's, it's a brilliant quote. And he um yeah, he just seems a really interesting, smart bloke. He um he was the person who gave Ferguson his famous halftime speech in the 1999 European Cup final, the one where he said to the players. If you if you lose, you'll have to walk straight past the European Cup and you won't be able to touch it. Because the day Archibald lived in Barcelona, I think he still does, and the day before he had lunch with Fergie or coffee or whatever, and he was sort of telling him about the time he lost in the European Cup final and how miserable it was to walk past the trophy. Fergie thought, that's quite interesting. And he was going to use it before the start of the game, but he thought it was too kind of downbeat. But then at halftime, things were getting desperate. They were being outplayed and 1-0 down. And, um, and he used that quote, which has kind of gone down into folklore, um, but it was another of Archibald's lovely turns of phrase. If I can recommend um, an interview to listen to, actually, it's with it's between Archibald and Graham Hunter. It's great, isn't the, it? Um, yeah, it's really good. Yeah, but it's more like I don't know in the actor's studio than you know what you would yes. normally get from an interview yeah. between uh, a footballer and a journalist. It's just fascinating, really. It's kind of theories on the game and yeah, teamwork and. I don't know, structure and the, the nature of football, everything like that. It's just really, um, he's just a really fascinating guy, I think. Yeah, he is. He kind of dances just... to his own tune, doesn't he? Harry, mm. uh, you saw him a lot. What type of, how would you describe him as a player? Well, he was on a kind of conveyor belt at that time where you, you just expected strikers to come down from Scotland and be really good, either immediately, like Kenny Dalgleish and indeed Steve Archibald, who was top scorer in Division 1 in his first season for Tottenham, or to take a little bit of time bedding in the likes of Graham Sharp and perhaps a bit later Gordon Jury and players like this. So looking back on it, you you, you kind of, and maybe this is why he, he might be a forgotten footballer, you kind of shrugged your shoulders because, you know, here was a another Scottish forward, okay, you know, they start with Dennis Law, they probably go back even before them, Jim Baxter I think was he Scottish? I think he was, yeah. Um, and uh, therefore, you kind of took it for granted from the perspective of 2020. That seems absurd that that someone sh- should just be expected to 
to come out of the Scottish Premiership and and score 18, 20 goals in the uh, Premier League. But we did then. Um, He was a kind of low heart rate uh, goal scorer. So, um, you know, he he scored goals in and around the six-yard box, a bit like uh, Lineker um, or indeed Ian Ian Rush. You know, he'd find space uh, making runs and often the run was made off camera. So um, when... The, by the time the camera picks him out from a pass from Ricky Vera or Ozzy Ardiles or, or Glenn Hoddle, he's already found the space. And you're thinking, well, it should be Mark and Archibald a bit there. But I remember uh, seeing him play at Goodison and you know he had uh, very intelligent runs. And I think that's one of the reasons why he was good in terms of partnerships. You know, he was, he was good <clears> with Garth Crooks at Tottenham and then later with Mark Falco, who could certainly uh, show John Fashnew a few tricks on how to... Uh, uh, put yourself about <laughs> up, up front, and um, so uh, he he was as you've already alluded to. I think he was an intelligent footballer. Um, some might say lazy because uh, he, he never seemed to exert himself too much. But what you get back from that is that low heart rates uh, goal scoring, where you're not necessarily trying to break the back of the net all the time. You're passing the ball into the corners. You've got that little bit of extra time. And he was always a, a, a real uh, threat. You know, my, my father rated him, which, uh, as I've mentioned many times here, uh, as I look back, was was always a decent mark for me. And he thought he, he was he was really good. Again, he, he kind of could see a bit of Dennis Law in him. Um, he probably wasn't quite in Dennis Law's class, but he wasn't far off. And uh, he he was he was a key part in in teams that won things. You know, won title at Aberdeen. He won two FA Cups at Tottenham. He was going to go on and, and win a La Liga uh, title with Barcelona, which was not the the kind of regular occurrence um, then than it that it became uh, subsequently. And um, yeah. I, 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 Part of it is is he didn't play that much international football because Scotland had this ridiculous seam of, of forwards they could choose from. So I think Graham Sharp gets 12 caps and Steve Archibald gets 23 or something like this because they've got so many other uh, forwards they could pick from. Almost an embarrassment of riches, which meant that they were chopping and changing between forwards. So we don't really see him so much in World Cups. Um, and so that... that takes a little bit of the 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 golden guild off what is a very much a, a golden set of palmares as they say in cycling his his honors so um he'd fit in perfectly today as a, a kind of slightly deeper lying i think second striker arriving late kind of the kind of goals Harry Kane scores uh, more of today where he's not the first, necessarily the first player into the box but becomes the second player into the box, finding the space as the defenders have rushed ahead of him and then picking out the corners, low finishes um, finding where the goalkeeper is, just that heartbeat longer to look up, assess the goalkeeper's position and, and hit it the other side of of him um, yeah, he was, a, he was an outstanding uh forward um and that shows in uh what mike's going to talk about a little now which was the uh move that still came as a surprise because british players didn't necessarily go uh to europe but the uh the call came a set of circumstances l tells on the line and uh steve archibald's on a plane mike 
Yeah, this is um, well, quite a surprising transfer, I suppose. So uh, Maradona left Barcelona in the summer of 1984, just as Venables was taken over. Actually, so it was Venables. The first thing in his intray was to do was to sign off the thing that no one else at the club wanted to sign off, which was Maradona's uh, transfer. So he he went to Napoli for six point nine million, I think it was. And uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, yeah, Venables decided to replace him, and I think for uh, was it one point one million brought Archibald across from Tottenham, um, which might sa- might not sound much in the context of Maradona's fee, but that's still a huge transfer for a British player. I think the the British transfer record at the time was Brian Robson to United, which was one point five million, and these are huge sums of money in those days you know before well, there was huge tv revenue in the game and um from you know, memory from memory and this sort of indicates it was reported as one million one hundred and fifty thousand pounds and that just shows how much it was because um that fifty thousand pounds was worth reporting uh it wouldn't nowadays it'd probably just be a million now or seven million or whatever but um you're absolutely right. The scale of things was such that, that a move over a million was was big news. Yeah, we, I mean, you, well, and if you just think about the context of Maradona's fee as well, six point nine. But I mean, there's all, there's all kinds of libelous rumours about how Napoli got the money together to to, uh, to bankroll that um, particular transfer. Which oh, I'm not going. I'm not well, going. No, no, we, no could aff- we could afford it now with our new Patreon. <laughs> yeah, they, they they can cover us. Yeah. So um, yeah, uh, so not not only did Archibald come in, who was a player a lot of Barcelona fans wouldn't have been that aware of, but you know Venables as well. A, a, in Spain, would have been a bit of an unknown manager. So uh, yeah, it, it was a new dawn for them, really. And uh, not only did um, Archibald take Maradona's place, he took his shirt as well. He had to wear the number ten because he he normally wore eight Archibald. And I think was a bit superstitious about it, but Bernd Schuster was the number eight for Barcelona. And he's, uh, <laughs> good, good luck with that. Can you yeah, imagine he's... that conversation? Two of the most stubborn men in the history of mankind. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, in he came, and um, yeah, the uh, Venables uh, from the get-go tried to implement um, sort of different. He's very, he's very keen on pressing high when he moved to Spain. That was his big thing. Is um, you know, thought, Gagan pressing before it got I, given. I that, thought um, I was going to say. I thought that was invented in the last decade. <laughs> yeah, uh, there, there was some football before then. So um, <laughs> yeah, in a, in a pre-season tournament, I think they beat Boca Juniors nine-one, um, which was an indication of a bit. They might have had a you know decent team gradually coming together. And on the opening day of the La Liga season, um, Barcelona were. I think this is right. I think they were away to Real Madrid, which is just a, a fixture television wouldn't just not allowed to happen now. You know, on the first um, first game of the season, and it's interesting actually. There was uh, there was a television strike that year in Spain, um, which meant a lot of the footage of this particular season is actually from just you know in the ground cameras with no commentary and things like that. So it's um, that's uh, the start of that season particularly has got a bit of a a kind of mythical quality to it but um Barcelona they went on to absolutely flatten that um that season it was two points for a win in that league then and it was they won it by 10 points I think from mm-hmm. Atletico Madrid it was Barcelona's first title in 11 years and 
Archibald scored 15 goals in that um, that run. So uh, yeah, christened Archie Goles by the uh, <laughs> by the Barcelona fans, and um, yeah, so that their first title in over a decade, and uh, it gave them a, a chance or a crack at the European Cup the following season as well. It's an incredible story, really, to go over there because you're right; it couldn't happen now that Barcelona will go eleven years without winning the league. But for him to go over and be the main man along with Schuster, I guess in them doing that it's, it's a heck of a story yeah I mean the four the four previous titles before they won this one were oh it was the two, new firm wasn't it yeah two were won by Athletic Bilbao and two were won by uh, Real Sociedad I'm just, so, I'm just, yeah. just going to put his 15 goals in context so that season the Pichichi or have you pronounce it went to Hugo Sanchez he got 19 so I mean he's worked the days of Messi and Ronaldo scoring 50 a season 15 was a pretty good haul and he didn't I don't think he took penalties did he no, he didn't know. So I think Schuster took the penalty. Yeah. But um, yeah, and actually Hugo Sanchez was the the player earmarked to replace Maradona, and I think was like the choice of the fans and the president and things. But it was it was Venables that forced the issue with um, bringing Archibald across, and yeah, it was completely vindicated uh, mm. in it. So uh, yeah, the following season, eighty five, eighty six, Barcelona got to their first ever European Cup final. Um, They've been in a lot of finals and won. they've won it since several times. But it it was such a huge deal for them back then to try and uh, try and win their first ever European Cup. Um, they put the holders out. Archibald scored the goal, didn't he? Yeah, it's called it's uh, it's called I think by Barcelona fans it's called the goal with the ear <laughs> because um, it's a kind of side side on head. It actually comes off the side of his head, not off his ear. But um, yeah, that that put out Juventus effectively. Um. In the quarterfinal, then they had a really wild semi-final against uh, Gothenburg, where they lost the first leg three nil in Gothenburg. They won the home leg, the second leg three nil, and then went through on uh, penalties. So the whole thing had a an air of destiny about it, um, and, <laughs> until they got to the final, and uh, it all went um, all went wrong for them against Bucharest. It's a game which Archibald was subbed off actually after about. Um, and now I, th- I think he had some kind of injury trouble before the in the lead up to the game, so he wasn't fully fit. But he he still laments the fact now that he was substituted in that final, um, because he he thinks he was just coming into the game. And I think he'd taken a penalty and scored against Gothenburg. He scored in the shootout when Tottenham had won the eighty four UEFA Cup final against Anderlecht. Yeah, but um, yeah, oh that shootout for. Barcelona, what a psychodrama that is. I mean, you know, missed Did, all four of their penalties. <laughs> Imagine Venable's internal monologue while that was going on. Oh, yeah. It was a shocking match, that. And uh, it was always going to be go either go to penalties or a moment of inspiration. And I can kind of, you kind of look at it and you think, well, you bought him for 1.15 million and he's got a record of winning honours uh, you'd think even half fit you, you'd want to leave him on the field because if the chance comes he's going to put it away but you know um, Alan Smith came on for Lineker and all of that managers do these these things but it was a shocking final and he'd love to say that kind of that probably is it the last European Cup that was won by a kind of or your even European trophy won by an Eastern Bloc uh, uh, kind of uh, Eastern European team. There must there must 
be one or two, I suppose, won by uh, Europa Leagues and UEFA Cups, won by Ukrainian sides in between. But you'd love to think that that you know you could look back as a romantic sort of win for Stoya Bucharest, who were probably getting paid the same as the caretakers at uh, at Barcelona and and won the European Cup. But it was a shocker. It really was a shocker. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of an outlier in the whole history of the competition, I think. Uh, that and Red Star Belgrade, they're the only two teams from the east of Europe to have won uh, the big one, the European Cup or the Champions League. Um, it was, Zenit won the Europa League, I think. Yeah. When was that? Um, 12, 12 years ago now. 2008, I think. Yeah. yeah, they beat Rangers, didn't they? Didn't CSKA win it in 05? Yes, they did, yeah. Um, but you're right about the European Cup. Yeah, Red Star, obviously, the yeah. other one. But... Um, but yeah, yeah, that final, I mean, that, that was virtually the the end of Archibald at, at Barcelona. I mean, he did, did stay for another season, but then Lineker and Hughes came in that summer. When did Venables leave? Uh, it was after the, it was a, I think it was, the they lost to Dundee United, didn't they, in the yes. UEFA Cup, and that was quite a big, um, big thing. I think it was the September of the following season. They had a really bad start to 87, 88. Okay. And he left, and then eventually made his way back to um, to yeah. Tottenham. But, um... Yeah, and the, the rest of his uh, record, and he's still relatively young at this stage because he goes on loan to to Blackburn Rovers. He's thirty one or so at that at that time. Um, it reads like a, a Jonathan Meads program from about fifteen years ago when he, he went round Scottish football towns and. Uh, Needsy was was out there doing his quirky observations and uh, dry acerbic wit um, at the at the football clubs that we all know from kind of the cl- classified results, but we don't quite know where they are. Um, I've always made a point to remember that St Mirren was in Paisley, but if you're asking me where some of the other teams are, I don't know. But he went off on uh, on a trip uh, around Scotland, Hibernian. The aforementioned St Mirren, Clyde, a game or two at Reading, Air United, two games at Fulham for some reason, and then 49 at East Fife. Um, and uh, he sort of drifted away from from uh, view, uh, but for a while he was uh, he was he was a you know a proper baller, as the kids say. And just to prove that, and to uh, close this one off with any remarks that you guys have before. Put, posing the question whether he is a, a great forgotten footballer with a, a very high element of achievement and a relatively high level of forgottenness, for want of a better word. Uh, at Aberdeen, he won the uh, Scottish Premier Division in uh, 1980, goes to Tottenham, wins two FA Cups in succession in 81 and 82, wins the UEFA Cup in 84, goes to Barcelona, wins La Liga in 85, and uh, is beaten finalist in the uh, in the big cup in in eighty six. So um, you know that's quite a, a list of honours. So um, Archibald, one of the the great forgotten footballers or not, uh, Rob? Yeah, I think you've um, persuaded me. Actually, uh, you look at what he achieved and his strike rate is really good for that era. If somebody didn't take penalties. Um, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily... It's interesting, though, because I'm kind of going on what I've read and seen rather than what I experienced at the time. And when I think of him first, I kind of think of his character. There's a, there's a lovely quote 
about Kim Hughes, a former Australian batsman. It was something like he had the courage not to become ordinary. And mm. I kind of feel like that with Archibald, really. And people like that make the world a far more interesting place. Yes, they're, they're kind of mavericks without sort of Stan Bowles haircut in some ways. And Yeah, I, but it's I, not, not a kind of ostentatious maverick. Yes. He's just, he just very strong-minded and, um, yeah, sees the world through through his own eyes. And, uh, yeah. yeah. I wish um, I did that. <laughs> Ma- Mike? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think he's... In the UK, he's not. I guess he's not a visible maverick, is he? I mean, because I think he still lives in Barcelona, mm. and um, you would think. So, I think someone like him, he'd make such a great, you know, interesting pundit. But you don't see him. <clears throat> you don't see him on that circuit at all, really. You don't. You don't hear that much from him or about him, really. I no. think he's more. Um, he's more visible in. Um, you know, in Spain around the football scene and that. So I just think may- maybe he's kind of slipped from view for that, but for that reason. Uh-huh. But if you think if, if Barcelona win that shootout and he, and he did get out of the European Cup, if you think about the whole thing about Brits abroad, I mean, I think that would that would put him up with, you know, John Charles, Gareth Bale, these kind of players. I mean, it's because he he did go abroad and he was he was very successful there. And that that title, I think, often gets. Um, Forgotten when people, or not forgotten so much, but it, it doesn't get mentioned as much as it should. Really, yeah. the first title in eleven years, because people tend to jump from Cruyff the playing career to Cruyff the managerial career at Barcelona, and not consider kind of what went um, in between. Really, and I think uh, there's a quote in one interview I read with Archibald where he said it irks him the fact that everyone credits Cruyff the manager with bringing Barcelona out of the darkness. Um, and not giving enough credit to that 84 to 86 team mm. uh, that won the first league in 11 years and got to that European Cup final. Yeah, and uh, so I think we can we can place him in our, our group of, uh, of forgotten players who do not deserve to be uh, forgotten. I'm sure he's, he's not a, particularly in Aberdeen, um, but to some extent at, at Tottenham, I think if you, if you talk about Tottenham's... Uh, sides of the early 80s, you'll hear perhaps a lot more about Hoddle and Ardiles and Ricky Villa than you will about uh, Archibald and Crooks and um, and Falco to some extent, maybe Graham Roberts as, as well. But uh, Archibald certainly deserves to be in the same breath, even if we're just talking about Tottenham um, before his, uh, not exactly trailblazing, but nevertheless mm. bold and successful move to the continent. Um, I do, um, I should just say, I do love the fact that um... That song is his and his alone. It's never been replicated for um, <laughs> yeah. anyone like Will take more care of. And it's such a strange choice for a song template as well for a, you know, a football it, terrorist. It, uh... it, 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 it was, but it was a, it was a time when mm. kind of media and popular culture was very, very narrow. You know, it mm. was... Uh, it was 81, 82, there wasn't even Channel 4. There was only BBC One and BBC Two, you know, and they, they would often say, and BBC One is now closing down. We'll be back with Play School at 3.55pm. And they just stopped broadcasting because they, they just felt it was not necessary to, to broadcast. And so um, BA had a huge advertising budget. So you keep hearing this over over and over again, and mm. advertising jingles were, were very powerful. But why it should be adopted at White Hart Lane, sort of on the shelf, um, I guess a kind of 
three-syllable name like Archibald is quite tricky to fit into uh, yeah. jingles. But you're right, here we are, 40 years on, and it was the first thing I thought of is we'll take more care of you, Archibald, there's, Archibald. There's, there's something really affectionate about it as well. <laughs> like the fans... <laughs> The fans singing to him, we'll take more care of you. It's not, no, it's just, uh, it's, it just seems really sweet. But. I think you might be reading a more kind of Sondheimian level of, uh, <laughs> of layered meaning into the lyrics uh, there, Mike. But yeah. I, know what, I know what you mean. It, you know, there are... There are uh, there are uh, there must be reasons why some stick and, and some don't. But you, you're talking to a man who has a soap dispenser in the in the bathroom that uh, when the soap comes out, it does that uh, early eighties chant at goalkeepers of "Who are ya? Who are ya?" So um, <laughs> maybe I've got an over uh, an over active imagination when it comes to uh, football terrace chants of the 80s and 90s. But speaking of um, people who were successful on the continent, like Steve Archibald, let's uh, do a reverse gear and look at uh, a man who was a trailblazer the other way, who was successful um, in England from the continent. Now, uh, Rob, do you want to open up with the, the body of our pod this month yeah so we are going to uh talk about arsenal's first double under arsene wenger um in his first full season although he joined in september october of the previous year so it was kind of his second season um and yeah where do you start really it was just it was something completely different in english football there have been a couple of foreign managers before joseph wenglos Ozzy Ardiles hadn't done particularly well. Um, Arsenal sacked Bruce Rioch a few days before the start of the 96-97 season. Um, and they were linked with three managers mainly. Terry Venables, uh, Johan Cruyff and Arsene Wenger. Um, and it was all driven by David Dean, who had met Wenger a few years earlier and stayed in touch. And he, I think he wanted him to take over when George Graham was sacked, uh, when Rioch came in but he couldn't quite persuade the board then after Rioc left he managed to kind of push it through and there was, there was so much kind of suspicion and ignorance um, I mean Wenger was known a little bit because Glenn Hoddler who was England manager at the time had raved about the impact he'd had on his career when he won the title with Monaco and also Wenger pretty much persuaded Hoddle to go into coaching I think Hoddle said when he went to Monaco he had no interest at all working with Wenger kind of inspired him and um, made it a more kind of interesting uh, potential future career. Um, so, but there was all the usual stuff, you know, Arsene Who was back page headlines. I forget which paper, probably all of them. Um, they'd actually bought, um, so they were kind of before it was a fit for a long time, everyone knew Wenger was coming in, but it wasn't official. Um, and they bought a couple of players at the start of the season called Remy Gard and Patrick Vieira, who you know, and the time season preview while decrying the sacking of Bruce Rioch and everything else and the kind of state of Arsenal said, and who are Gard and Vieira? Um, and of course, I, and it's not being sniffy because I didn't have a clue who Vieira was at the time. It just sums up the the climate. Now, as it turned out, Wenger had seen Vieira play against Monaco when he was about 18 and he played brilliantly against, I think it was Claude Puel, who was in the Monaco side, who was quite an experienced, good player. And Wenger wiped the, uh, Vieira wiped the floor with him, basically. So Wenger arranged his signing for Milan where he was doing nothing before he joined Arsenal. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, it was all about really suspicion, even in the dressing room, you know, most of the players, 
you know, all that stuff about it looked like Inspector Clouseau and um, Tony Adams is quite open about how he thought, you know, he won't be as good as George. Who is this Frenchman? Turned out, of course, they all fell in love with him pretty quickly because um, everything he did was different. You know, it was all on a stopwatch. There were loads of stretching. The food habits changed. He had this phrase, you have to chew to win. So that the slower they eat, the more quickly their body would register that they're full. You know, there was broccoli everywhere instead of the usual stuff. They were chanting, we want our Mars bars back on the coach. I'm home from away games. But it but it, it was just, a, if there, it wasn't a revolt. But they very quickly, he very quickly won the dressing room because they all started to re- feel, A, enjoy training more because there was more ball playing involved. But B, they, they, you look at interviews with any of them and they all say like really quickly, almost within a week or two, certainly a month, they just started to feel fitter and sharper and leaner. Um, and it just perpetuated itself, both that, that feeling of feeling good about your body, but also about the football they were playing. You know, the back four were encouraged to express themselves a bit more. I mean, I'm not saying he turned Steve Bold into Beckenbauer, but they were allowed to to push on a lot more than they were under George Graham. Ryuk sometimes doesn't get enough credit for being a kind of bridge between the two because they did play good football under Bruce Ryuk, um, and they'd obviously signed Dennis Bergkamp, but Wenger took that to a whole no- another level, really. Uh, before I bring Mike in for some uh, observations on that kind of overview, I just want to say a few words about David Dean. Uh, who for a long time was kind of Mr. Arsenal, although I think his actual title was vice chairman because, you know, he was CEO essentially. But um, I think the Hillwood family still sort of retain the the, the kind of boardroom, so to speak. And um, a little anecdote is that uh, I went to a few Football Supporters Association meetings in the early 90s and I remember I went to one uh, above a pub in Pimlico and the speaker was David Dean and um, first of all kudos for him turning up to a room full of boozy sort of uh, blokes uh, who were obviously bolshy enough to join the Footballers Supporters Association and I think I, I had the first question and I was probably four pints into a sort of seven pint night and I said something like does the FAs, uh, or does the um, do the Boxing Day fixture list, which at that time had kind of Middlesbrough playing at Portsmouth and <laughs> Everton yeah. playing at, uh, <laughs> at kind of West Ham and stuff like this, does it not demonstrate the sheer contempt with which the travelling supporter is held by the uh, by the football association or something? And I got this kind of all his heads swivel round, you know, who's this bulgy scouser uh, doing this and some sort of whistles and applause and stuff like that. Because I think they were starting out by saying, you know, who's your favourite Arsenal player? But I wasn't <laughs> any of that stuff. And Dean gave a, a very good answer. Um, but to his credit, at the end of the session, he, he sort of sought me out. Um, and he was only a sort of little short guy and he kind of tapped me on the shoulder or something. And he said, I was very interested in your question. He said, uh, are you coming to the Everton game? Because it was on the Saturday. This was on a Tuesday or something. And I said, oh, yeah, I'll be at Highbury there. He said, would you would you like to be sort of my guest there and we can talk after? I said, oh, it's very kind, but, you know, I want to be with my own boys. I always love uh, Highbury and uh, with the Everton fans there. It's great. And he said, well, could you do me a favour? Could you write to me about your experience at Highbury as an away supporter? I really want to hear what it's like for, for away fans, because I want to see what we can do do for them. And so, you know, it was it was early 90s, I suspect. So I remember 
um, sitting down in this flat and handwriting a, a kind of list of experiences, most of which were complimentary because apart from Craven Cottage, Highbury was always my favourite away trip. And um, a couple of weeks later, um, on kind of Arsenal-headed paper, um, you know, marble halls and all of that, I got a, I got a, a, a detailed response uh, from signed by Dave. The dean um, saying, you know, thank you for the views, everything else. Uh, anytime I, I wanted to, to come in, he'd be de- delighted for, to have representatives, uh, you know, sort of host me and all this kind of stuff. Um, but clearly, I think he was, a, he was a man who would think outside the box. Um, and he was a football man, David Dean, even if he was an, an administrator. And you can't judge judge a person just by what is almost a chance encounter like that but but I was very impressed with him both personally and how he dealt with a, a two-hour session with uh, rowdy football fans and um, you know I think that innovation and particularly holding his nerve because with Wenger there was a, a good kind of six maybe eight weeks when all we had was this sort of name and he was coming from Japanese football, which we all felt was something like Pac-Man or something like that. You know, we didn't think it was real at all then. Um, and he held his nerve. They got his man. And this is the last time I'll mention it. Uh, I remember my dad saying uh, about um, three or four months later, he, he sort of turned around after one of Wenger's sort of interviews, which we could never work out were, French accented or German accented on match of the day, and he turned around to me and he said, uh, "They were right then to wait for him, weren't they?" And yeah. I thought, "Yeah, Dad, they were." One, uh, one quick thing: on. he gave on the day he was announced, he gave an incredibly impressive press conference. Just looked so calm, relaxed. Obviously, spoke perfect English um, because it must have been pretty intimidating to come. In. English football was such a hostile environment, so kind of isolated really um and i know things were slightly changing with some great foreign players at the back end of their career coming over but um yeah he was just very impressed from the start i think it was really important that he built credibility early in in different ways one another way that that happened was um this is when he's signing he's signing his job had been announced but he still wasn't at arsenal so they played sheffield wednesday on a monday night game on sky and he came on the jumbotron before the game to say you know blah 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 can't wait to come over, blah, blah, blah. And um, Vieira was on the bench and he hadn't played at that point. I think Ray Parler got injured early on and Vieira came on and he was just majestic. They won 4-1 and I I think Wenger said he was like a genie from the lamp. And I think that performance and the fact that Wenger had taken, who was essentially in England, an unknown footballer, and he looked so good immediately. I think it gave him enormous credibility with supporters. And then they got off to a pretty good start. I and mean, they went out of Europe early on. And he, I think Adams criticised him for changing tactics. I think it was against a bunch of Gladbach. But they hit the ground running in the league. And they, were, I think pretty soon they were top of the league for the first time in about four years. So it was all pretty plain sailing in one sense. But it was all that stuff off the field about like whispers and allegations, which just fucking vile beyond belief. Um, but even the way he dealt with those was so impressive. Yeah. He just came straight out and said, basically... You know, anyone to say this, I'll fucking sue you. And just like completely fronted up, no hiding behind statements or anything. Um, yeah, he was just just very impressive, really. I mean, the British football, particularly in uh, the mainstream media, by which at that point was largely the written press, was so parochial. Mm. Um, not only was it Arsene who, I remember reading somewhere, distinctly reading that the new era for Arsenal starts off with uh, signing an AC Milan reserve. 
and yeah. uh, that was Patrick Vieira. Who are guarded and, Vieira. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it's hard. I mean, maybe maybe we just find, as a country, we just find different ways of expressing our parochialism or our English exceptionalism. I mean, the, there is no level of, of evidence, no level of achievement, no level of uh, of foreign cosmopolitanism which can can shift it. It just keeps coming back, you know, like those those uh, boxes and shows you a different face of the Chinese box. Um, but let's not go too far with that. But I want to bring you in, Mike. You've been very patient to. Uh, listening to Rob and I rattle on. What was your experience of uh, Le Professeur? Well, I, me- I remember him coming in in 96, and that was the that was the kind of the great summer of change in English football, I suppose. So uh, this is, um, I've mentioned this on the, the pod before, but I'll, I'll just, sorry, rattle through it again, is that in the season before, 95, December 95, was when the, the Bosman ruling was passed. And there was a new television deal in the April of 96, just before Euro 96. So all of a sudden the rules had changed completely on um, the amount of overseas players you could have. And all of the clubs were suddenly cash rich. So they could, um, you know, start start to bring in players from uh, all over. And I think maybe that summer, I think maybe England and English football was a bit freaked out by the, um, you know, sudden arrival of... Um, Lots of players from outside the UK, but I, I remember that the Vieira thing struck me pretty clearly because I, I, I used to read world soccer uh, religiously at the time. I remember reading a, lot, a little profile on Vieira, and he'd gone to AC Milan. But it was back when AC Milan used to stockpile players, mm. um, I think Brian Laudrup was there for a while, and he, he barely ever played for them in the, they the short is that, time. Is that right? They didn't have a reserve league either. So they were oh, there was yeah, never a reserve no. leave in Italy, no. Yeah, so Vieira had played, I think, twice um, for AC Milan in one season, and that was it. But I mean, yeah, when they brought him over, I just think, well, you know, is that AC Milan? You know, a team that's been in three Champions League finals in a row. He must have, yeah, he must, he must have a bit about him. Um, and yeah, as Rob said, Vieira coming in straight away. And being a success, I remember the the, the wait for Wenger as well. Mm. That was uh, that kind of built up the anticipation a bit. There was about a month, wasn't there, between yeah. the announcement and him actually coming in because he'd been at, um, I think it was at Grampus Eight who yes. was manager. I was yeah, Linnick's yes. Lin- 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 old club. Oh, that's right, because he wanted to honour his contract, didn't he? Yeah, which is typical. Yeah. which is very Wenger. Um, yeah. So, so he. I mean, unlike some of the players that were coming in, I suppose, we, we knew who Viali was. We knew who Ravenelli was. Um, they, they were kind of in English eyes, I guess, proven. But um, yeah, there, were just, there just wasn't as much known about um, Wenger. But uh, yeah, immediately transformative, carried himself very impressively, came in with a, a very clear mandate for how things could be changed and improved i think not just at arsenal but in the he made a lot of comments about you know english football and the structure of it and the the density of fixtures he immediately almost immediately clashed with ferguson i think was this in his first seat rob will correct me if i'm wrong here yeah, but the whole um it was yeah. it wasn't immediate but it was in his first season and i think that was quite quite important because it kind of set the tone for what would follow so they were actually quite respectful at first ferguson praised him for changing his style and um, things like that. United actually, the first, Vegas' first defeat was against in the league was against United at Old Trafford, 
um, which kind of started things off. That was in November, and Ian Wright was accused of... Sorry, Peter Schmeichel was allegedly racially abused Ian Wright, and that kind of rumbled on for a few months. The return game, Wright basically tried to break Schmeichel's legs, um, and there was more, and it all went off again, and there was the CPS were involved, um, the FA. Nothing ever happened, really, but it's it all started to go off after that because... Basically, Wenger made a few comments about, I think it was about Schmeichel, defending Ian Wright. And then what really kicked it off was um, United were having a fixture pile up. And they, it looked like they were going to have to play four games in a week at the end of the season, which actually they did in the end. They played four games in nine days, eight days, from Saturday to the next Sunday, the last four league games. So Wenger, United was asking for a. You know, Ferguson wanted an extension to the season because this had happened in 91-92 when they lost the league to Leeds and they were told when the Premier League was set up the following summer they were told that will never happen again and so on and so on and it was happening again but anyway Wenger said it would undermine the credibility of the competition blah 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 they should just play their fixtures <laughs> and Fergie Fergie waited until United lost surprisingly at home to Derby so it was a classic distraction technique and he just launched into one basically just going on about um, you know Arsene Wenger should spend more time talking about Ian Wright's tackles and things like that. He's coming from Japan and he's telling us how to run our football and so on. But anyway, it was interesting because it was the first time in a long time that someone had properly got under Ferguson's skin. At that stage, Arsenal were vaguely in the title race. They would end up finishing fourth. So it wasn't a direct rivalry like it would become, but it, it but it really set the tone for, for yeah, the best rivalry I've ever seen in English football anyway. Um, and just on that note, Arsenal, they did okay. They sort of... they. The second United eventually won the league reasonably comfortably, although it was a low-quality season. Arsenal finished fourth, but I think they're only a point or so off second. But what cost them was a lot of home defeats. They lost at home to United. They lost at home to Wimbledon. They lost at home to Liverpool in that game when Robbie Fowler uh, tried to tell the ref not to give a penalty. Um, but it was one home game, which I think kind of was the, probably the high point of that season when they beat Tottenham 3-1. I think it was in late November, early December. Two brilliant late goals. Adams with a fantastic volley, um, which kind of summed up, not quite summed up the new approach, but, you know, it was still a nice moment. And then Bergkamp scored a, a stunning goal when he takes down a long cross from right and in the same pro, in the same touch, beats a defender and then spanks it in. It was a really kind of primal, rain-sodden afternoon. You can see yeah, Wenger, I remember that. Wenger clenching his fists on the touchline and kind of when they scored the third. Um, it was just a brilliant brilliant day not obviously for beating Tottenham but the way they did it and you, you could definitely sense progress um and towards the end of the season he brought in Nicholas Anelka from I think it was PSG who was spoken of as you know the new George Weah the new Ronaldo blah 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 he made a couple of appearances so it was obvious even at that stage that he was tapping into the French market um which would, would become a huge advantage and I sometimes wonder what would have happened had he don't get me wrong, I think Wenger was a brilliant manager, but I wonder, I think two things really helped him. One was inheriting the back four, that he could just leave them basically, just do their job, and they were fantastic for a few more years. And two was that he was tapping into the French market at a time when France were the best, becoming the best team in the world and had so many amazing young players like Anelka, on Riviera, Petit a bit older. I sometimes wonder what would have happened if it had been an era when France weren't quite so good, as that was clearly the main market that he uh, picked players from. But having said that, he did so many good things in terms of just basically giving players freedom and trusting them. Um, 
and it was kind of the complete opposite. As brilliant, it, it, George Graham had done him a favour really by drilling the back four so well that Wenger basically didn't need to touch them, didn't need to train with them at all really, um, and he could just concentrate on letting the attacking player picking the right attacking players and letting them express themselves. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll take a slightly different <laughs> view. I mean, I'm, Go on. I'm, I'm largely I agree with what you say about the back four there, but what was transformative and you've already said it really was that he he gave them a kind of confidence a license to to play football yeah and rosette um which was first choice for sort of adams and bold uh throughout most of their early career um became kind of mark overmars or or, or emmanuel is- petit and he he just made them he made them confident enough to be ball players and he understood that the back four were part of the creative process, and he made the players understand that. Too. I don't think we should overplay it, though. I mean, they weren't passing the ball out from the back like John Stones and Ruben Diaz. I think no. they, I agree they express, were able to express themselves more, and it would culminate in the most glorious moment the following season. But I, I don't think we should <laughs> yes. overplay it. But you're right. Well, he not only did he put years on their career with the nutrition and everything, he made those years a lot more enjoyable. Yeah, I mean, I I still think that the the best passing English centre-back uh, that I've seen was John Terry. Yeah, he's so underrated. I, I, I think that, that Adams was never as good as, as John Terry but uh, at passing the ball. But he, you, you certainly see kind of in the later Adams career the, the, the kind of, of English centre-back which... You know, John Stones probably exemplifies more uh, than than anyone else at the moment. A, a, a kind of centre back who was who was willing to see a pass and not just knock it sideways or or knock it long. And when you think Adams was so established both at the club, um, both as a as a kind of iconic player for England and for uh, Arsenal, um, to to take him and okay, you know, he he needed to change things obviously in his private life but to to give him the confidence to to change and to get the buy-in from Adams to say that I'm going to become not always a different centre-back but I'm going to become much more than than I I have been even when lifting titles in sort of 89 and so on there was a lot I think that that speaks a lot of uh, to to Wenger's uh, willingness and ability to foster the imagination of players. Yeah, there was a lot of serendipity as well. The fact that Adams had yeah. independently given up drinking after Euro '96 was so helpful to Wenger in terms of because he wanted to, I think, ban drinking in the players' bar. And the fact that the captain and who's a character who was so important was had stopped drinking as well it just made things like that so much easier. Um, so there was a lot of serendipity for all of them, really. But yeah, it worked worked perfectly. So, Mike, we go to summer signings, and I've got a, a particular reflection I want to, to make on this, but I want you to tell us a little about them first. Yeah, so you say some very big um, big players came in uh, in the summer of 97 uh, with a view to what Arsenal were going to do the following season. So uh, key to that was Mark Overmars. Uh, signed from Ajax for I think about seven million, um, and we just go on to have a brilliant season. Um, it was seen as nine- gamble, wasn't it? Because he'd done his cruciate, had he? And people weren't sure if he'd be the same player. Yeah, I mean, so he missed he missed Euro '96 because he'd done his cruciate. Um, before then, I mean, God, he's one oh, of he's the quick, quickest yeah. players I ever said. I remember him taking Des Walker at yeah, Wembley. Yeah. In the World yeah. Cup qualifier, no one used to do that ever, yeah. and he just he just left him behind him. Um, but he he yeah, so he came in that summer, 
had a phenomenal season. Uh, Emmanuel Petit, Angel Grimondi, who had played for Wenger at Monaco. Uh, they both came in as well. Petit, there's a nice story about Petit, actually, in that um, <laughs> he, he was going to sign for Tottenham, I think. Or he, he went for talks at Tottenham and then uh, then left and said, oh, I've got another club to speak to. And I think he got a taxi from, <laughs> from White Hart Lane. To- on Alan Sugar's... On on Dime, expenses, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I got Alan Sugar to pay for it, which I'm sure went down uh, went down very well. Um, other players as well came in that are a bit more peripheral. Uh, Christopher Ray, uh, Louis Boamorte. Christopher Ray turned out um, quite important in the running because Wright and Anelka were injured a fair bit. Yeah, he scored a few crucial goals, actually. And uh, also going the other way, uh, Paul Merson left. Do you know um, why he left? It was, for, it was just for money, wasn't it? Yeah, it was basically... Yeah. so. Not only did he basically he got off Borough, Wenger didn't want him to go, um, but said, obviously, you know, you're a grown man, it's up to you. And he t- Merson told Wenger what he'd been offered at Borough. Not only was it more than Merson was on, it was more than Dennis Bergkamp was on. <laughs> so basically, you know, Merson said he does regret it, but that's why he went. Well, that's an astonishing transfer, you know, for a kind of England-level yeah. player to drop down a division. Especially um, as he just had a really good... So actually, we should say yeah. that they would become settled into a kind of... Four two three one, but the first season they played a back three most of the time, um, and Merson and Berg had played off Ian right, and Merson had probably his best season certainly at Arsenal, um, and then he went for money. I mean, not, again, I'm not criticising. Obviously, he had things going on, bless him, mm. but it just don't, shows that people make decisions for so many different reasons. Yeah. Just don't break my heart with three seasons that could have seen Paul Merson buy into the Wenger project at Arsenal and reach his full potential. Mm. Uh, that. That's one of the the, the great uh, missing storylines of English football uh, to see Merson at his very best in the Wenger yeah. side. Oh dear, that would have been good. Uh, I just although I will I will say you, I will say for, yeah. Oh, just because I will say for Merson, actually, he did go. He got Middlesbrough promoted, yes. and he got back in the England squad as well for the World Cup. So yeah. he, he did go on to have a brilliant season. But I, I've never heard him speak about it. But I wonder what he thinks about that transferring out at that point now. Whether he looks yeah. back on that with any kind yeah. of, uh, I think he regrets regret. it. Yeah, I I remember uh, sometimes when I check this detail, I'm like five years wrong or something like that. But I I do remember, um, and you'll understand why when I when I say it. I think it was quite early in that season, and I was at Goodison watching uh, Everton against Arsenal, and I remember distinctly. Um, the players run out of the tunnel at Goodison, Zed cars, you know, and all of that. And if you, if, I'm sure you both know that you're, you're running up steps to get out of the, the, the tunnel. So you're going up steps to get to pitch level. And I remember Vieira and Petit, and I thought, oh, here come Vieira and Petit. And I thought they were on the pitch, but they still had a, a kind <laughs> of step to go. And I had never seen such big central midfield players and when Everton, I don't think they lined up for the handshakes or whatever uh, then but I remember looking at the Everton players and they looked like a kind of under under 18 side or a schoolboy international or something you know when some of the players are really quite small you know Sean Wright Phillips was always really quite small but that was the whole of the Everton team because everywhere you looked in this Arsenal side um, there were these giants, you I know, think, Bold and Adams were big, but Vieira and Petit—they were must both have been six four. I think the power of Arsenal's of Arsene Wenger's great Arsenal teams is often under 
played a bit, or because they were so good on the ball, but you forget just how imposing they could be. Even Tom like Thierry Henry had a proper wiry frame, didn't he? You couldn't oh, um, yeah. bounce him around. Um, oh, yeah, the oh, interesting I, thing I, about Vieira and Petit, though, we'll probably come to it, but there were actually quite a bit of problems with them in the first half of that season. The defence weren't happy at all at the protection they were getting. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll come to that, I'm sure. Because yeah. uh, you, you mentioned Anelka there, and I've seen some fast players uh, in real life, and in real life, Pace is always kind of more uh, atavistic. Is that the right word? Or it's 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 more it, 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 it's more kind of primal than it is on television because you, you see these players running and you know, Overmars was quick, but he he was quick in a kind of recognisable way in the way that kind of Anders Limpar was quick. You know, they were out wide and and they could go past players, but Anelka was a player like. Like Ian Rush or, or or Thierry Henry, I remember as well. In that, when you gave them that sort of ten or fifteen yards to get up to speed, they were ab- he was absolutely flying. And at that point, he was just a kid, and he looked like a kid. Um, but I remember watching an Elka uh, play, and he was as quick as quick could be. Well, it wasn't just, I agree with that. It wasn't just, it was the fact you had Bergkamp put him through as well, yeah. one of the greatest mm. through passes ever. And it just, it could be so devastating. Just one, what Bergkamp would find his space, an Elka would time his run, and it's, it's very hard to stop that. Yeah, that that's my. One of my main memories of that team is just the way they would spring beyond the back four. Mm. It could be over Mazora now, because you're right, with Bergkamp. Yeah. Actually, if you watch, um, there's a really good, um, what's that thing Gary Neville does on Sky? Soccer Box. Um, Soccer Box, yeah. The Ian Wright one on that is great. I think he says about Overmars that he used to have real trouble keeping up with him, (laughs) Ian Wright, that he would go and he'd be gone and, you know, Oh, he'd be looking to his left or his right to tap it, you know, across the uh, across the area for a tap in. <laughs> and that's what Ian Wright would say. Initially, he he would have to go sometimes before Overmars went, you know, just in order to keep up with him. He was that quick. Um, one other player we should mention who came in that summer as well is um, Alex Mangin- Manninger, uh, the reserve keeper, because he had to come into the team for a couple of months when Seaman was injured, and that that's a feature of this season. We'll come on to discuss it, but. The players that had to step in, because Arsenal had a lot of injury problems this season. So when, when Grimondi came in and Anelka and then Manninger, you know, players English football moments. wasn't aware. They were crucial and they all worked out as well. And it just, it gave you an indication about Wenger as well. This is a guy where he can really identify uh, players, particularly young players. Well. I remember Amy Lawrence, who writes about Arsenal, saying that... Um, when she interviewed people for her book Invincible about the Invincible season, obviously, um, that they pretty much all of them stressed how good Wenger was at making the peripheral players feel like they were really part of the team. It wasn't just a case, you know, you hear about some managers who, particularly in those days when there was vaguely still a sense of a first eleven, uh, rotation was kind of coming in, but it wasn't fully developed. And apparently, he was extremely good at making everyone feel like really important, really part of it. And that's why, and that was a recurring theme of all their triumphs, really. 2001 2, when they won the double, they had loads of injuries. You had people like um, Lushny coming in and playing really well, um, and even Stepanovs, who had been ridiculed, had a, a decent spell. So it's interesting. I don't know exactly how he did it, but apparently, that was a real strength of his. So let's have a look at the uh, season. And Mike, do you want to sort of steer us through uh, the 96, 97 season? 97, uh, sorry, 97, 90, 97. I knew I was going to get Gary. that wrong. I know. 97, 98. Uh, yeah, so the opening day of the season starts with a 
a one-all draw at uh, Leeds United, which I remember being a really good... So two really nice goals in this, one by Hasselbank um, and one by Ian Wright. And then uh, for August, um, it essentially became the Dennis Bergkamp show. Um, he was just in ridiculous form in this month. Um, got the one, two, three in the uh, the match of the day uh, goal of the month. Um, two two of which came from a, a hat-trick against Leicester in a three-all draw. It was a brilliant, sort of, one of the brilliant early games of that season where um, he scored his, his actual... His, there's, I think, the second one, he just sticks it in the top corner from... Um, someone takes a short corner to him and he like, curls it right in there. It's a wonderful goal. And then... The goal that looks like it's won it for Arsenal um, is a bit of an identical one to his um, completely overrated goal from France 98. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, obviously. But, um, yeah, it, it's uh, it's like a, I don't know, like a little radio edit version of, the, um, of that goal, but um, it's really nicely taken. I just remember the camera cutting to Ian Wright, and I think he'd been subbed off at this point. Where the look on Ian Wright's face, the reverence for what Bergkamp's <laughs> just done, is uh, is just really beautiful. But then, then Steve Walsh, I think, scored a, I think something like a ninety seventh minute. There were, um, there were actually three ninetieth minute goals. So Leicester equalised in the ninetieth. Berg or three injuries. The Bergkamp then killed them, or so they thought, with that amazing goal. And then Steve Walsh scored again. Mental game. It's interesting, just quickly yeah. on the reverence. You're right, right, <coughs> and Merson in particular. I love the way they talk about Bergkamp. Like Merson says. He, I never thought a professional footballer could be that good. And mm. Wright just always says he's the best signing Arsenal will ever make. Um, yeah. It's really quite sweet. And these are two bloody good footballers as well. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, the, Actually, the, two. I was going to say the Leicester game, before we, we go away from that, um, I, I think it's probably indicative of its time. And this is a, you know, it's the theme of what we're talking about, isn't it? Which is the, the kind of continental influence and how... Um, English football was was changing and it was changing irrevocably and inevitably because uh, the continental influence was working. But I remember um, looking at, at Filbert Street and Filbert Street was very much an old school English football ground. It was very tight, um, very hostile. Uh, and it was a night game, I think, wasn't it? And it was, you know, the flood- yeah. Floodlights weren't absolutely great the way we're, we're used to, to having them now. And Bergkamp was almost kind of balletic in, in, in this match, as he often was, particularly in that extraordinary uh, run of form. And it was, it, was almost, it was almost like he'd been dropped in from a, another planet, another a culture, into this most English of environments. You've already mentioned uh, Steve Walsh scoring a goal there. Who was, who was the other kind of iconic centre-half? Matt, Matt, somebody at last night. Oh, Elliot. Matty Elliott. Yeah. Matt, Matty Elliott, yeah. He scored as well. And they were both good players, uh, have no bones about it, but they were very much of the English um, style in a most English of, of grounds at Filbert Street. And here was this, you know, cliche, cliche coming Dutch master um, playing this football um, that, that just looked, it looked like the future. Uh, and it was a future that we all hoped for. And you know, even even fans of of opposing teams, uh, particularly in that run where Bergkamp was doing these extraordinary things, we kind of wanted that to be the future, even though it was more likely to be Arsenal's than ours, because it was just it just looked 
it looked like a world that we wanted to be part of. You know, there was that kind of, um, it was a very kind of messianic time. You know, everybody knew there was a new government coming, uh, or rather a new government had just started, hadn't it, in 97. And there was the Britpop thing and everything else. And there was this enormous kind of sense of hope and new beginning and, and youth and opportunity. And without you know, playing the kind of cultural historian card too hard. Um, I think uh, Bergkamp, Wenger, and this uh, glamorous, exciting Arsenal, uh, as far removed from the 1-0 to the Arsenal as you'll ever get, was all part of that kind of of movement that 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 was that was visible and you, you just hoped you could hitch a ride on it yourself. Funnily enough, they, they redefined one nil to the Arsenal later in the season. But um hmm. no you, you, I completely agree with you, although I could, t- talking of the English style you mentioned, one of my abiding memories of this game is Steve Walsh and Ian Wright almost having a punch up. <laughs> so they oh, both yeah. got they both got in big trouble. Right what well, you're right, right, had been stabbed. I think he went over to have a go at the ref for a playing four hours of added time and Walsh got involved and, <laughs> yeah so it was a real mixture of the new and old worlds but you're right just one thing on Bergkamp's yeah. first goal he was so good at that that just like whipped finish into the top corner yeah often mm. with no but he had a bit of a backlift for this one but often there was one against Barnsley a month or so later almost no backlift just beautiful technique the other thing I always loved about Bergkamp was just the simplicity of everything he did it was, there was no ostentation at all really I think if he is ostentatious in a way he talks about Football, which, you know, fair enough, he's probably on the right. But the actual way he played, everything was just so simple, often just one touch and kind of really economical. Two, yeah, he, um, two quick he, things on, on what you said about, um, sorry, go on uh, uh, Merson and Wright, actually. It's, it's, there's two lovely anecdotes I've heard from both of them about um, Bergkamp. One is that, so Merson, when he initially signs in the, the summer of 95, I think they're, they're on pre-season somewhere, I think Austria or Switzerland, I think. And he, he said uh, they had to walk over this bridge to get to this training pitch. And they walked over this bridge. They trained with Burkamp for the first time. And it was just like having their minds blown. Um, I remember Merson saying he, that they let him walk ahead of them uh, over the bridge back back to where they were staying. And Mer- Merson just said him and the other players were just giggling like they couldn't believe it. Like They were saying, how good must Inter Milan be? If, <laughs> you know, if... if <laughs> If Dennis Bergkamp is surplus to requirements, and one lovely anecdote I love um, that Ian Wright said is that he he used to room with Dennis Bergkamp, and that, so the first few times they roomed together, he said Dennis Bergkamp used to wear pajamas, <laughs> which <laughs> Ian Wright thought was really funny. But then there was so he was so like impressed by what a good player Bergkamp, that he started wearing pajamas as well. Like, yeah, he he wanted to do everything the same as um, Dennis Bergkamp. Yeah, and you're right about the. Um, the backlift on his shots. I think it's the the goal at Southampton is a bit similar as well. It's that yes. way you can just kind of dig it out of the ground and just whip it into the top corner. It's just it's such an exceptional bit of skill. And actually, I don't even know which one of the one, two, three from the goal of the month actually won it. I think, I think it was the, no, it was the Argentina one. Yeah, was it? Yeah, yeah. but um, yeah, and, and just a final thing I would say on Bergkamp actually is that um, you know you could still get away at this era of English football with some pretty hefty tackling. But one thing I've always liked about Bergkamp is he's got that combination, same as Zidane as well, of style but with edge as well. You know, he wouldn't he wouldn't take being kicked out of the game. He got in loads of disciplinary trouble yeah, well, that, in his first few years in England. Their, their toughest game on the way to the FA Cup by far was the um, 
West Ham quarter final, and that was partly because yeah. Bergkamp got sent off for crumping his elbow into someone. I forget who it was, <laughs> but he was sent off early, and they kind of dug their way to a tool draw and won on penalties. So yeah, yeah. He, definitely, he definitely had that edge to him. But yeah, brilliantly yeah, graceful too- player, but he, well, he could handle himself as well. Yeah. Well, the the, the euphemism. Uh, and you'd often get it from kind of Motson in particular, but uh, other commentators. Uh, and I think he's just missed time, that challenge in the uh, centre circle. He's just missed time, yeah. that elbow, into Steve yeah, Lomas's def- face. Definitely missed time, that one. Uh, straight into the upper end of the uh, shin. Uh, but yeah, um, and you had to do that, as 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 uh, you say there. Um Dennis Bergkamp. Uh, so, uh, Mike, do you want to pick pick up then after um, Dennis's... Uh, can you monopolise with three, triopolise the goal of the month, if that's the right word, at, uh, in August? Yeah, so they, they got off to a really good start, um, Arsenal. They went and beaten through their first uh, 12 games, I think. Uh, it was quite a notable record um, that we should mention, uh, which was broken in the September of 97. And that's uh, So Ian Wright broke the club's all-time goal-scoring record. He scored a hat-trick against Bolton um, to ta- uh, to break Cliff Bastin's 50-year-old record. Um, he actually he actually miscounts during the game, so he scores a hat-trick. And so when he gets to 178 to equal it, he, t- he takes off his shirt to <laughs> reveal, reveal like a Nike-sponsored vest with uh, 179 just done it um, written on it. But then I think he scored a few minutes later anyway, so he... Uh, so he broke it for real. And um, yeah, a, a quick thing on the Arsenal goal-scoring record as well, actually. It was it was one of the lower ones out of the, you know, 178 for a club, the stature of Arsenal and everything they've achieved was quite low. If you think like, you know, Ian Rush's at Liverpool was something astronomical. Same with Jimmy Greaves at, uh, at Tottenham, although Harry Kane might, might get it eventually. Dixie Dean's at Everton, that might never be broken. 350-odd, um, I think. Yeah, and you know, uh, and Root and Rooney had a you know an exceptional career to break uh, Bobby Charns. But the flip side of that, I'll say, so to break Ian Wright, he broke Arsenal's goal scoring record, and he didn't sign for the club until he was twenty eight years old. So mm. to go to go there at that age and you know break a scoring record that's been there for fifty years, that's pretty exceptional. That um, the sad thing is, yeah. it came at a time when the team was kind of leaving him behind a bit. Yeah, for so long the team had been built around right for for good and bad, and Wenger was kind of moving on from that. And also, Wright was getting old, you know, thirty three, thirty four. But it was quite a bittersweet season away because he ends up winning the league for the first time, and there's like lovely images of him, you know, cavorting with his medal and everything. I think I think he texted Roy Keane after that game. Yeah, yeah, but um. But also, he'd hardly played in the second half of the season, partly because of injury, but but also because the team had moved on. Um, so it was kind of bittersweet. But, but yeah, I absolutely love him, right? I think most, almost all right-thinking people do. Well, it's interesting that you say that, because um, for a long time in his career, and I, I was certainly one of them, uh, I saw Ian Wright score four against Everton, uh, all four laid on by Anders Limpar. Uh, in a match at Highbury, and he was completely unplayable. Were you there just quickly? Day. Were you there for that game when he turns Matt Jackson inside out? Yeah, that's a, yeah. I love that goal so uh, much. It's, it, I mean, he, uh, he, he, 
these days he always says Everton is his second club, and you know I completely, <laughs> I completely believe him. But part of it is because, like Les Ferdinand, he was always seemed to be two levels above what he was the rest of the season when he when he played against against us. Um, and uh, I mean, we're beginning to see that the, the man that we know now, uh, partly in that sort of botched 179 just done it thing um with the kind of self-deprecation and the and the sort of uh uh kind of foolish foolishness but but not foolish unaffected uh kind of errors and um but etched with enough insight and enough ability um to show that he's a kind of serious person but at that stage you know right he had disciplinary problems mm, as you mentioned massively. he got into brawls you know he would spit at players i'm sure he was he was at least alleged or accused of that sort of thing um and i'm not saying that's the man he is now by any means um because he was in a, a kind of transformation to become the kind of lovable character that we have we have now and you know with a, a lot of of kind of the emotional um, intelligence that he demonstrates uh, now, but it, it, it was very much he was very much still widely disliked, I think, by opposition uh, supporters, and it was resented that he he sort of moved into the commentary box so so quickly because you're thinking, uh, sorry, the pundits chair so quickly because you're saying, you know, what's this this bloke got uh, got to offer here because you know he was he was not a kind of polished performer um but what we what we hadn't seen then was the charm and what we hadn't seen necessarily is how much he was he was uh loved by his uh fellow players and how also, he got on with them and al- um, also we weren't as aware then as we are now as how much he was provoked and how much he was racially abused. I well, look back, I look back at the Schmeichel stuff and just cringe. Now, whether Schmeichel racially abused him or not is by the by. Wright was basically for months, essentially made to, to apologize for alleging he was racially abused. I mean, it was looking back at it now. It's just, it's just, it's another world basically. And yeah, so you, you, I'm not surprised he was on edge so often because yeah. you're right, he did get in trouble a lot. And actually I look back, so I didn't particularly like him at the time either, partly because of a, more mainly because of a Man United thing, you know, and I look back <laughs> slightly ashamed about that actually. Well, I, I think I, I'd put a little bit of nuance on that, Rob. I mean, I think you're, you're right. I think what it was and, I, I think this was just kind of culturally normative behaviour, yeah, and it shows how far there is to go with things like Black Lives Matter and so on. Is I think we all knew that that Wright was abused. Uh, he was certainly abused from the terraces. Appalling, terrible abuse. Yeah, from there was the an terraces. incident at Oldham, wasn't there? I think that's when he was apparently spat at a fan. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. But we just accepted it somehow. No, you right. thought that this was the lot of the of the yeah, black right. player. This well, was the. No. And 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 even though oh it's distasteful and I'm not doing it myself of course I would never join in there was no real thirst to say we should there was no real thirst to say we should cut it out no, I agree. Um, obviously there was the removal of the national front from Elland Road and things like this but that was more to do with uh, hooliganism and firms and links into far right political groups and combat eighty eight but there was no thirst to deal with what you might call less organized what you might call sub-violent kind of levels day. of racism yeah. all day, every day. Mike's good on, Mike's good on this because there's an example from your 96, isn't there? It shows how small a thing it was at the time. 
with um, Stoichkov. Oh, oh, Stoichkov and Desai, yeah. So, um, yeah, they they have a running battle through the France-Bulgaria game. And, uh, I mean, Stoichkov basically came out and admitted it at the end of the game, that that he'd racially abused Desai to wind him up. Um. Yeah, and 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 Desai said that afterwards as well, and then it kind of it made it got a couple of lines in the papers the next day. Was it like a desultory dis- dis- fine or something? I don't, I don't even think there was that. And you know, Stoichkov he wasn't even suspended or or anything like that. It's uh, yeah, it's unbelievable, really. Mm. But, but you, you're yeah. both right. It was just that that was the norm in those days, which yeah seems slightly. Mm. You would even weird. have. You would even have, and I think you, you've mentioned this, you would even have criticism when a player reacted or even said, even just saying that it shouldn't happen, was they would get a label as being temperamental, difficult, you know, um, not really fitting in, sitting at their own tables, all this kind of nonsense. And it wasn't, it wasn't challenged. And I, I, I sometimes... Uh, it was challenging the likes of when Saturday comes, and I remember, you know, reading it once a month coming through, and you've got this alternative narrative of football culture that came through that, and it, it did start to change. I think when some of the <coughs> younger writers who had um, grown up with fanzines and had grown up in sports pages and had read in particular when Saturday comes, but some of the more radical. Uh, fanzines that were going around grounds, the end in Liverpool in the early 80s and so on. And it was such a, a delight for the for the likes of me, because here were people like me, white working class fans of football. And our voices were being heard. And for those of us like me who didn't have the courage to actually stand up and say, cut it out, um, here we were seeing the beginnings of a, of a movement that still hasn't uh, completed its work you know, the thick end of 25 years later, but has certainly had an effect and has moved the kind of Overton window, you know, that window of what's deemed civilised conversation um, in public spaces. They, they've moved it on. But, you know, it's it's often summed up this period of John Barnes sort of backheeling that banana off the pitch, the famous uh, photograph. But the volume of microaggressions and low-level stuff and we can only assume on the pitch because we do have examples uh, of it as well as off the pitch. How these players held it together and the debt that's owed, not just by the black players of today who have a better but still not perfect working environment, but black fans and and white fans and everything in between that we have civil more civilised spaces uh, now uh, in which football is watched and if you're staying off the wider reaches of the internet where football is discussed uh, then we all owe the pioneers like Ian Wright and Des Walker and Viv Anderson, Clyde Best and lots of others uh, a debt because uh, they 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 crawled through that pipe like Andy Dufresne does in order to get to the, uh, the, the cleaner air that still is not perfect that we have today. Sorry, end of rant. Uh, Mike, back over to you for the season. Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll just finish. Um, if I could just do a quick bit on um, Ian Wright, the player. I mean, you were talking about him not being beloved by other fans. Um, I, have to, I have to say, I from afar, I've always really, really admired Ian Wright and just loved him as a player so much because um, 
I just love his enthusiasm for football mm. more than anything. I think a lot of that comes from being a late bloomer, I think. Um, you know, think, thinking he might not make it at some point. Um, subsequently found out, you know, a, a lot more about his life and, uh, you know, how, how close he was to not making it. The influence of... Um, you know, a particular teacher on his on his career and oh, turning that, his life around. Yeah, that clip but, when he meets him is absolutely lovely. Oh, and that guy, that's like, I don't know, the the last five minutes of Stand By Me or something. I, I can barely watch it. It's so it's, sweet. One thing is, about, one thing about right, he's one of the all-time great celebrators. He had such, he such is, a... Yeah. George, there's a lovely line in George Graham's book. It's something like, when Ian scores, it's not a goal, it's an event. And it's, yeah. just, it's so true. It's uh, yeah. I, I, don't get me wrong. I absolutely loved his charisma as a player and his individual skill. It was just typical bloody because he got up, you know, got in trouble against United a few times. I didn't like him, which I look back on feel slightly ashamed about. But yeah, on the Mister Pigeon, on the Mister Pigeon uh, quote, my favourite bit, and I do, you know, I don't tear up easily. Uh, I have to say, but I I struggle. Uh, in the, I don't know. I've seen it a dozen times or something now. The bit that gets me is when he takes his cap off. Yeah, yeah. His teacher, and the first thing he does is whip his cap off because he's right back to being on that uh, playing ground uh, with the PE teacher uh, there, who is the only person who believes in him in his whole life. And he takes that that cap off, and I can almost, I can almost feel the tears pricking my eyes now because you know I was. I was a teacher of a kind for a while, and sometimes you do you get that connection. And when and when you get it, it's worth everything else put together in the world times ten. And it must have meant so much to Mister Pigeon and also to Ian Wright. It's the most beautiful clip, and if you haven't seen it, mm-hmm. do. There are there are yep. a million contenders, but come on, what's your favourite Ian Wright goal? Mike, oh, you go first. I'll tell you mine. What you you drop that. Yeah, you do yourself. I think, well, that. I love the one against Everton when he lobs, long kick forward, yeah. lobs it one way over Matt oh, Jackson, yeah. lobs it back yeah. over him, and then lobs it over. But the, my favourite, I think, is, I did a piece on this once for The Guardian, a goal, a chip at Leeds in 95, when, again, it's a long goal kick, and I think there's a bit of a ricochet, and out of nothing, he's facing away from goal, 25 yards, and he twists his foot at this incredible angle, doesn't, and does a no-look chip over Lukic. His ability to spot things and score unique goals was just incredible yeah. i haven't you described just, it very well i'll probably describe it better in print hopefully but i absolutely love that goal it just sums you, him up the individual individuality the imagination the skill unorthodox brilliant you've just done the two i was going to do <laughs> sorry <laughs> do you want um, to while i do mine yeah go on yeah I'll, I'll so, another so man you might not like this uh rob but it's very early on Is and, the, the cup final yeah oh, i love because that the bit because mm. there'd been a bit of hype beforehand. Yeah, because he'd broken his leg and he was only on the bench. And, and you know, he'd come from playing on Hackney Marshes. It wasn't Hackney Marshes. It was for Streatham Rovers or something. It's just down the road from here where I am at the moment in South London. I can't remember the exact uh, team. Um, but there'd been a lot of hype coming on. And he was clearly kind of as pumped up as Gaza was in 91 when he gets the chance mm. to come on. I think he was substitute, wasn't he? And he yeah. came on yeah, of in the FA leg, yeah. Cup final. And um, 
you know, with the way he talks about the FA Cup now, it's, I mean, this is the authenticity that you get from Wright, which is, which is always very appealing because everything he says about the FA Cup now, you see in, I think he was 23 or 24, um, and he'd come from non-league football and he was going to come on and play in the FA Cup final at Wembley and he scores that goal. And in that moment, you just had for better or for worse, you had one of those moments in which the dream comes true mm. and the vicarious pleasure you get from someone who'd gone to bed with shoot and who had you know, watched Tarby's FA Cup final bar and thinking they were never going to make it. And then there they are scoring a goal in the FA Cup final. A brilliant uh, goal. Realizing, mm-hmm. And a brilliant goal, realising uh, the the dream so yeah. that's what that's love, my favorite what i love about that goal you're absolutely right it's not just the goal it's the the fact that it's the kind of goal you imagine he scored a million times on park parks yeah. or on playgrounds you know that just a classic piece of individual skill kind of cruyff turns away from pallister who you know you're not talking about some idiot this was a very good defender and then also the really calm even the second goal was pretty good actually the volley from Solarco's cross he cushioned yeah. it really nicely um yeah obviously at the time, I was thrilled United equalised. No, but looking back, you kind of think, geez, what a story that would have been. Palace winning 3-2. He scores two off the bench. Um, yeah. Uh, so, Mike, you've had a little bit of thinking time now. Uh, you've got 179 uh, to two. But I think he got two or three more after that, didn't he? But, um, yeah, you've got you've got his, uh, his full repertoire of Arsenal goals, or, or indeed some for England as well, um, which is or yours. Palace. Or Palace, yeah. Or West Ham. Or, or West Ham, yeah. Oh, yeah. Or Burnley. Did he score for Burnley? Anyway. Yeah, we, we, you just picked the third one I was going to do, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, can't run out of that. Um, well, if we're allowed to pick up, I, mean, I, I would say the one at Leeds just because there's so much disguise on it. I mean, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? He, yeah. How does he not bust his ankle the way he has to twist it so far because of the disguise? Yeah. But it just it fools everyone on the pitch. It fools everyone watching. I mean, you just don't expect him to do that from that close as well. To, you know, to well, um, yeah. I love how slowly like, it just loops as well. And, and yeah. Luke, it's just kind of oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> I know it, and it, actually, we should say just quick. He was a master of chips and lobs, right? An yeah. absolute master. There was one at Swindon from about forty yards. I remember one for Palace against Chelsea when he twists someone inside out. An absolute master of that type of goal. Oh, actually, yeah, the Swindon one. I'll take that one because he booms it over. Um, Fraser Digby? Fraser Digby, I think, isn't it? Yeah, from like way, way out, yeah. right into the top corner as well. There's so many. Yeah. And there's so many finishes of his as well that are just, they're not, you know, they won't make goal with a month, but they're just such classy finishes. Yeah. And it goes back to that, um, I think Sid, Sid uh, Pigden, his name is, isn't it, the teacher? Mm. Ian Wright said, he, uh, Mr. Pigden would drill into me like about Jimmy Greaves and how to finish and, you know, score, score beautiful goals and all this kind of thing. Mm. So when Mr. Pigden goes, you know, says, uh, I'm so glad you've done so well with yourself and just taps him on the shoulder as Ian Wright's just bursting into tears. Yeah, and that's just such a beautiful lovely. moment, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, let's let's pick up uh, the season again. And I'm going to go back to you, uh, Mike, because um, you've provided an extremely useful uh, crib sheet for us. Uh, yeah, so... Arsenal go through the first, as I think I mentioned before, the first 12 games of the uh, season unbeaten. I think the 
the biggest kind of, or the earliest statement victory in the whole season was um, they won three two at Stamford Bridge in September. Um, this is a this is a brilliant Great game. This it's like a, a like a lost um, Premier League classic. I think this. I've got a really fond memory of this game as well because it was the it was the day I went back to university for my um, second year. I remember it was a Sunday afternoon. I remember we, we all met in, up in the pub that afternoon and just. <laughs> You had a Homeric drinking session that, that went on all day, but th- this game was just um, brilliant, and it, it was showcasing the kind of changing nature of the Premier League. I think there were. Um, well, you look at the goal scorers yeah. just quickly: Poyet, Zola, Bergkamp, and uh, Winterburn. But yeah, but yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, but you're right, that, just, uh, go on, go on. No, go on, Rob, sorry. And I was just going to say, got a bit of context. Chelsea really fancied themselves, didn't they? Because they were mm. emerging under Hullet, they won the FA Cup, hadn't challenged for the league for ages, but I think they really fancied themselves this year. Um, and actually, funny enough, three days later, they got a really good draw at Old Trafford. I think Poyet and Keane had a fight in the tunnel, which is yeah. important only because it shows, you know, if you're, if you're trying to have a fight with Roy Keane at Old Trafford, then you clearly kind of fancy yourself to a point. But this was a, re- this was a really good win for Arsenal. Yeah, so I mean, and, and it was it was really... You know, with the new, you know, the Bosman ruling and all the money coming into the game and everything, it was really Chelsea and Arsenal that got onto it first um, uh, in terms of uh, bringing in like the really high quality foreign players that um, other clubs might not have been as aware of. So I think there were there were uh, eight overseas players in the Chelsea team, which was like just done had been unheard of um, uh, before. I mean, it, it, it worked. We were only got like two years into the past the Bosman ruling at this point, but but they also had. Paul Hughes in midfield as well. Did they? Yeah, so it was that kind yeah. of, it was that time where you just, you know, teams were a hybrid of, you know, yeah. they had one foot in the kind of, sort of 80s, early 90s, and then, you know, one foot in what was to come. And uh, yeah, fantastic game. Uh, and two all going into the kind of last sort of five minutes, I think it was. And then uh, uh, Nigel Winterburn stepped forward and uh, stuck one right in the top corner from, uh, I don't know, sort of 25, 30 yards out. Brilliant, brilliant goal. Absolute <laughs> joke of a goal. You're right. uh, but actually, it's got, the moments like that are quite important because it does tie in with the whole increased freedom that they had yeah. on the Venga. Now, I know Winterburn, mm. funnily enough, scored an astounding goal with his right foot against Wimbledon, I think, in 88-89. So it's not fair to say they would never do it under George Graham, but it does feel like they probably would have tried it a bit more inclined to try something like that under Wenger. It was a fantastic. It was the last minute, I think, or the eighty ninth minute. It was just a brilliant goal. Yeah, well, the the cliche minute. under the cliche under Graham was that they got fined if they went over the halfway line. Yeah, which I, I'm sure they were. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, clearly they had a lot more freedom under Wenger. But I just wanted to point out that there's yeah. one that goal against Wimbledon in the, late in the title race is even more ridiculous than this one, mainly because it's with his right foot. But yeah, and funnily enough, they followed that up. They looked they were looking so formidable at this point because United, the defending champions, have started fairly slowly. Four days, mm. three days after Chelsea, they beat West Ham four 0 They were falling up at half time. Um, and that was a half decent West Ham side, so yeah. They, and then I think the next home game they beat Barnsley five nil, so they were looking absolutely electric. And then it, they suddenly fell off a cliff for a little while. Yeah, so a few days after the Chelsea game, three days after they hammered West Ham, half decent West Ham four nil at home, they were four nil up at half time. Then there was a tool draw at Goodison. I don't think you were out that way, Gary. No, I don't think so. I was busy being a parent. <laughs> And then the next Saturday, they beat Barnsley 5-0 at home. Bergkamp scored that lovely goal we mentioned. So at that stage, 10 games in, 1-6, drawn four, scored 27. They've been absolutely electric. Um, 
and they were top of the league, I think a point clear of Man United, the champions, three clear of Blackburn, four clear of Leicester. Um, and it looked like they were well set for a, a proper title challenge for the first time in a long time. But then, well, they would be obviously ultimately because we've already given away the fact this is about the double, but they then had a serious blip. Um, so I guess we'll get to that in part two. Well, that's it for part one at our look at uh, Arsenal's uh, double year. Um, we'll be back with part two very soon. Um, but before we go, a quick reminder that you can support Ness and Dorma by going to patreon.com forward slash Ness and Dorma or putting Patreon in and Ness and Dorma. You know, the wonders of Google will take you to the right place. And there you can push us a little bit of money to support the tech, the broadband, my tax bill, which is coming uh, quite soon by the end of January, all that kind of stuff. And we'd be delighted if you if you would. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I've been at Gary Naylor 999 on Twitter, and uh, he's been Rob Smythe. <laughs> Not on Twitter, but thank you. <laughs> at Nesson Dorma Pod on Twitter. <laughs> and he's been Mike Gibbons. Thanks, Gary. And we'll see you soon with the uh, rolling out of uh, Season Mirabilis for Arsenal. <laughs>